seated. Joshua chapter 23 this evening, our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old and advanced in age. The book of Joshua now closes with two addresses that Joshua gives to the children of Israel. Chapter 23, he uh, focuses an address on the leaders of the children of Israel. And then in chapter 24, that address is focused to the people uh, that made up the congregation of the children of Israel, the nation as a whole. There's a gap of about 13 years between chapter 22 and chapter 23. And when you add the seven years that it took for them to conquer the land up to this point, uh, they've been in the land now for about 20 years. And so it isn't that they've just conquered, done the general conquest of the land, and uh, now Joshua turns to them and begins to speak these things. There's about a 13-year period that has passed. In other words, it's enough time for Joshua to... Uh, for the people and the leaders and their decision-making to kind of see what they're made of, uh, where they're going to go in their obedience to the Lord. And we, we kind of expose ourselves and our commitment to the Lord over time in, in our decision-making. And that's kind of what happens here. If Joshua had come to them, and he's going to be very exhortive uh, of the people, especially in chapter 24. And if he had come in and just exhorted them so strongly immediately after the seven years that it took to, to conquer the land, he wouldn't have yet had a, um, uh, a clarity for uh, their private lives, for the choices that they were going to make, that they were already making that were bad choices. And so enough time goes by that they show their true colors now, and he's able to speak to them with great candor, and it makes it even more powerful And uh, because he, he's addressing what their lives uh, actually are. The context that, uh, of all of this is in verse 1 where we're told that Joshua is very aged and he's nearing death. He's going to die ultimately as we'll see in the next chapter at the age of 110 and uh, he probably wasn't going to live much longer than these two addresses here in the final two chapters. And, and uh, so pro this probably takes place, this first address probably takes place at the, uh, Shiloh, which was the administrative and spiritual center uh, for the children of Israel until the tabernacle and things were moved ultimately to Jerusalem uh, by, by David. And so this is where he calls the people together to that, that place and probably, probably in this first address for sure in the second address because it's mentioned. There is something powerful about final words in life. And... Um, a lot of times I'll, I'll be either attending or officiating at a, uh, a memorial service where someone has uh, gone on into eternity, and most often for me, and I'm thankful for it, people have, uh, it's Christians and they've gone on into heaven. And oftentimes when there's an illness and it's a protracted illness and everybody kind of knows that the end of things is approaching when hospice gets involved and 
their great ability to manage pain and, and all. Sometimes people will become, hospice will become involved and someone will have a breakthrough and come back and be around for quite a bit longer. But by the time that kind of thing happens, usually whoever it is that's, that's dying, it, their words become even more valuable to the family and to their loved ones than maybe any other time in life because there's just a finite period of time and opportunity to share what's on their hearts. And here, though, Joshua isn't dying of any kind of terminal disease. He recognizes he's going to be gathered uh, home uh, to the Lord in a short period of time, and he's got some things that he wants to say uh, to them. Very, very often when someone is dying, a husband or wife, for example, uh, in those final days, so often before the medications are applied that cause a person to lose their ability to really think clearly or, or, you know, where you have that sense that you're talking to them, very often there'll be a breakthrough where a husband or wife or a father and a child or a mother and a child can can have a discussion where she or he is able to say everything that they want to say now to that husband or wife or to that that child and that's always something that's very very prized the final I love you's the final um, instruction on on what to do and perspective on the life that's already been lived and so this is the place that we find ourselves here with with Joshua and so these words that he speaks to them He's not just saying, oh boy, I've got to get a couple of sermons together. These things are really, really important on, on his heart, and, uh, there's, and he wants to speak it to them. There is something about age and long life that really produces a clarity in a person about what is important in life and what is not important in life. Now, I'm not an old man yet. I don't think anybody considers themselves an old man or an old woman ever. That's somebody that's 10 years older than us, right? I feel like an old man sometimes, but enough about my joints. But um, there's something about growing old or growing older that does bring a clarity to life about what is really important in life and what isn't important in life. I view life entirely different now at, at my age than I did at 30 or 40. And it's really wonderful because what you, all of these things that you think are so important, so worth going crazy over and working so hard toward and, and trying to attain, time has a way, and I'm assuming that the time is spent in walking with the Lord, time has a way of really uh, you know, cutting through and testing that. And then ultimately, if a person walks with the Lord the way that Joshua did, they come to the end of their life, and what they have to say about how to live life is so refined and it's so beautiful, and in his case, so concise, that it's really, very, really valuable to us. It, 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 things become simple over time for the child of God. And so when we listen to Joshua here, it's his last words. We realize we're hearing what is the most important thing on his heart to say to these people. Now, some of you in this room, you come from a, a godly heritage, long lines. I mean, you look as far back as you can, maybe, maybe not as far back as you can, but one, two, three, four generations, and you've just got piles of Christians as a part of your heritage. And that's a wonderful, wonderful heritage to have. And maybe you've had a place in your life 
where you've known a parent or you've known a grandparent or great-grandparent at the end of their life and to sit down and speak to you about what is really important and exhort you toward greatness and the kingdom of God and godliness. And, and you've had that as a part of your, your life and your heritage. And that's a wonderful thing to possess. But not everybody has that. Some of us come to know the Lord and we're the, really the first one in our family. We're the first generation. Hopefully we'll be the ones that say that and begin a history in our family of that kind. But the nice thing about Joshua here in this place is even if we don't come from that heritage, we can tap into and make Joshua our great-grandpa or our grandfather and listen to the things that he speaks to the children of Israel and let him then speak those things into our lives. None of us are, are short a, a godly heritage that are in the kingdom of God and, and voices that can speak to us about, about how to live. And so he speaks from a, the vantage of old age, but more than the vantage point of old age, he speaks from great experience uh, with the Lord and, and gives them and gives us uh, great, great instruction. Joshua, in his final declaration and, and message to the people, it, it wasn't, his whole concern was not for himself. His whole concern was for the people, for their relationship with the Lord, for the advancement of the kingdom of God through the, the next generation. These are the things that dominate. And that's what happens. I, you know, you, you think about if the Lord tarries and I mean, I don't want to be too melancholy, but, you know, sometimes you think about if I were on my deathbed this evening, for instance, um, I wouldn't be talking any politics with my loved ones. In fact, in no matter what condition I was in, I wouldn't be talking <laughs> politics. I wouldn't be talking about the world economy or all these things as, as much as they deserve some people's attention. But, and they do require attention, but not our supreme attention. My entire concern for my loved ones would be what Joshua is here, and that is the relationship with God, walking with God. Everything's going to be okay if you do that. And this is the gist of what it is that he says here. His audience, we're told, he called for all of Israel, verse 2, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers. So the leaders of the children of Israel. And he said to them, I am old and advanced with age. In other words, I'm not going to be around much longer. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations, driving them out before you because of you. For the Lord your God is he who fought for you. And so... Here he speaks to them of the cause for their success and the uh, conquest of the land. It was the Lord who had done it and, and how the Lord had uh, uh, blessed and it, everything was owed to the Lord. They had given, what Joshua is saying is, we simply gave God our obedience and then he did everything else. And so he's saying to the children of Israel, the leaders is, Stick with what got you here. Uh, one of the great scenes in a, a movie, you probably there isn't much that's bad in it. I hardly ever reference movies. And um, uh, because I always forget the title. 
Oh, it's Hoosiers. So you want to have some kind of a saver sensor thing on it. I think it's like two or three swear words in it. But when they, if you've ever seen that movie, and here we've got the final four and now the national championship, the NCAA basketball uh, tomorrow night at 6. How many of you would not be in church tonight if it were uh, this evening at 6? Just a quick show of hands here. But Gene Hackman, who is the coach of this basketball team, high school basketball team, he takes him out on the court the day before the, the big game for the state championship, and he has him measure the distance from the floor to the rim of the basket. And he asks him how, how high that is, and he said 10 feet. And he had him measure from the back of the rim uh, or whatever it is that out to the free throw line, asked him what the measurement was, and it was and, and it was 15 feet. And they're in this gigantic arena of people, and they've never been in an arena that big that's never been in front of that kind of a crowd before they're from Hickory, Indiana. And so what he, the point he was making is you can forget about all of that out there and just play on this court that has the same dimensions, the same way you played back in Hickory, and we'll be okay. In other words... Go with what got you here. And that's one of the things you can be sure that the coach of uh, University of North Carolina and the coach at Michigan State is telling his team with some minor adjustments, but we've got to go with what got us here. And for the children of Israel, what got them into this place of possessing the land, this place of victory, was just simple obedience to the Lord and then giving the Lord the opportunity to bless them in the way that he wanted to bless them. And when we obey, we allow God to bless us as largely as He desires to bless us. And so He said, just don't forget, folks. Here it is. This is how we got here. And, uh, and remember that. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea Westward, And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. And so you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. And so he, he spoke to them about the fact that God had been faithful to drive out uh, the uh, enemies that were in the land in the general conquest of the land. Now he encourages them in verses 4 and 5 that God will be just as faithful to them as they go forth as individual tribes to conquer the land that God has given to them. Now one of the things that's interesting here in all of this with Joshua speaking to all of the leaders of the nation of Israel, it's different. When Moses passed off the scene and he went into eternity, um, the, the nation of Israel was handed over again to a single man, to Joshua. Things change with Joshua. Joshua doesn't call a single man forward and say, now you do within the nation what I did. At this point in time, there is a, um, the authority within the nation is going to move from a single great head and it's going to move to the leaders of these tribes and these clans. And so it's going to be a, a diffusing of just pure power among the children of Israel so that they will then be forced to seek God on their own 
for his direction and leadership and his power than to, to conquer the land. And it was a, that's a very healthy way of doing things because then people wouldn't be looking to a mediator, uh, one great man that God had put over them, but they'd be looking to, to God himself. All that will change uh, later on when the children of Israel will demand of Samuel that they be given a king just like all of the other nations. But God intended it to be this way, so it's a new format, and Joshua encourages them, listen, just because kind of the governmental structure has changed here, it's the same God, you're going to be fine. But just make sure you as leaders obey God in your tribe in the same way that I obeyed him in leading the people as a whole. And then he gives them, beginning in verse 6, four things that they really needed to do in order to guarantee their future success. And so here you've got this, Joshua, again we come to the whole theme of the thing, you've got a life-tested wisdom that Joshua gives to them now for how to be successful in God's calling upon our lives as His children, no matter what He calls us to do. First of all, He said, therefore be very courageous to keep all that is, uh, keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. The number one thing that He says at the end of His life is He exhorts them to a very strict, unerring, no direction to the left, no direction to the right, obedience to the Word of God. And I don't know, probably you think about if you were speaking to your loved ones in your final conversation with them as a child of God, that would be the place that I would start too. And just say, obey God and everything else will be okay. It's the single great issue. And I think it's important for us as Christians. Sometimes I'm, I, I, have a, I get a great sense of reward, and I'm not alone in this. I get a great sense of reward in accomplishing things. I like to do things. I like to work. I like to see things get done as a result of, of work. And, but sometimes there can be a, a bad side to that a little bit, and there can be a tendency to move maybe a little bit too quickly sometimes. I'm not talking about being reckless or talking about being prayerless, but moving a little too fast. And the Lord sometimes has His way of just pulling in and doing something. Some maybe a minor crisis occurs that reminds us just to pull back and make sure that every single decision, even the ones we think are so small, every decision is being made absolutely strictly according to the Word of God and not on the basis of my history, yeah, I've always done it this way, or yeah, sure, that sounds good, but what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say in all decisions, large and small? Wouldn't it be wonderful if our country came back to that? Our country doesn't understand that the mess that we're in right now is because we have abandoned God's definitions of right and wrong. And there's only one way to correct that, and that is to return to God's definitions of good and bad and right and wrong. If the foundation isn't right, you can build whatever you want on it, and it's going to crumble. 
And that's what needs to happen. And that, but it begins with us as God's people. We can't change the culture that we're in as an act of our will and force people. But we can model before this nation that we live in that this is the way to live. We obey God. Look at the kind of life, the satisfaction, the blessing, the peace that we have as we obey the Lord. And so the importance of obeying the Lord and the blessing that comes out of it. The second thing that he uh, exhorts them to do in verse 7, And lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor shall you bow down to them. And so he calls on them to maintain an absolutely strict separation between themselves and the sin that was being practiced in the world around them. And a separation between themselves and whatever else the world was, is worshiping in this world. And so not to give the idolatry of this world uh, even the smallest place within, within their lives. Not to be conformed by the world. So I, I, like in the New Testament, Paul said to the church at Corinth, you know, speaking on behalf of the Lord, Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. And I'll be a father to you. In, in, in that decision that is made. And so a call to separation. And as the world gets darker and darker, and as the world gets more sin infested, and I can't, I can't believe somebody... I, a pastor sent me uh, a, the latest statistics from... I recognize the name, but I can't remember it at this point, on what is happening now on the cell phones in terms of pornography and in terms of what's being communicated on there and what people are being exposed to and most specifically teens and you just I don't want to get separated from the world I mean I don't want to lose touch with the world but as you try to walk with the Lord and make decisions with the Lord I mean there you got this it's a two-edged sword I mean by obeying him and living a life of separation all this becomes more and more shocking to us. And yet at the same time, we have to stay engaged in the world in order to be an influence for it, but not in their sin, not in what they're worshiping. And so the importance, as the Bible says, of being in the world, but not being of the world. And he exhorts them on this. Number three in verse eight, he said, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done this day. The word hold fast in the Hebrew is an interesting one. It means to cleave and literally means to be glued together. Now, I used to do... I'm using a lot of eye illustrations tonight, which makes me uncomfortable. But my life is the only one I've lived, so I'm fairly limited. Send me some illustrations from your life next week, and we'll try and use them in the book of Judges. But when I was doing a little bit of woodwork, and I was never very good at woodwork, um, but they had this thing called weld wood, that once you, that was the best glue that you get at that time. Maybe there's better glues now. But once you glued two pieces of wood together with weld wood, the, that, that glue was so strong, the only way you could break that, that union would be basically to destroy both pieces of wood. And that's the word that he uses here. In other words, Joshua is saying, maintain a relationship with God that is so intimate, that is so close, that nothing can get in between 
you and Him. And there's that need for intimacy with, with God. So he's saying, watch your personal relationship with the Lord. So he begins with obedience. But why do we obey? I don't obey the Word of God. And I don't think, I'm not gonna, I don't think that any victorious Christian, on whatever level of victory that we've attained to, obeys for any length of time on a, as a, on a legalistic basis. We obey Him... Because we love Him, which is the fourth point we're going to get to in a moment. I get my sermons backwards. But we obey Him because we love Him. And then ultimately, we obey Him because anything that disturbs the force or anything that disturbs the intimacy of the personal relationship that we have with Him, that disturbance that occurs there, nothing is worth that. No sin, no other relationship, no anything makes it worth a separation in our, of that intimacy of relationship with the Lord. So he says, maintain that. Number one, get a relationship with God that's that close and that intimate, and then protect that relationship. And then he said in verse 9, For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. And therefore take careful heed to yourself. Here it is, number four, that you love the Lord your God. And the fourth thing that he calls them to is to have a love for God that is greater than anyone else or anything else in life. So we got his, he's not on his deathbed, but this is the equivalent of his deathbed uh, encouragement for how he's, a, he's, I mean, he's been a warrior. He's been a right-hand man to Moses. He has led the children of Israel for uh, decades, long period of time. And so he opens up his mouth and he speaks and he says, in essence, it comes down to these four things. Do those four things and you're going to have a great, future in front of you and he speaks there in verses 9 and 10 and tells them all of the blessings of obedience and then in verse 12 he speaks about what happens if people would disobey the Lord for or else if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations these that remain among you you make marriages with them you go into them and they to you you start to mix with with the world know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you, scourges on your sides, thorns in your eyes, doesn't sound very pleasant to me, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And so basically what he's saying is, disobey God's word and his commandments, and you are in for a lot of pain. It will be a very painful experience and one that does a great uh, bit of, uh, of damage to you. Now, the interesting thing here is Joshua, as he speaks here, and again, it's the clarity that comes with the Holy Spirit, but it also comes with age. He just talks about two things that we have. There's obedience and there's disobedience. That's all there is in a relationship with God. 
There isn't this another category called partial obedience, because as the old saying goes, partial obedience is disobedience. There isn't this category that God accepts of kind of maybe partial, uh, uh, you know, obedience and uh, mostly obedience. None of, none of that, that doesn't come under the category of obedience. There's just obedience and there is disobedience. And here is... Joshua speaks to them in verses 9 and 10. He kind of uses encouragement. These are the blessings of obeying God. But you know, not everybody... The Bible says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And for the average person, it's how good God is to us despite the terrible creatures that we've been that causes us to bow our knee and, to, and humble ourselves to God come to know Him, and then ultimately to walk with Him. And our life becomes a response to His grace. But then there's a, a group, a, another group of people for whom it is the fear of God that keeps them in line in terms of their personality and their relationship with God. And so in verses 9 and 10, he seeks to move Israel by the grace of God. And then verses 11 uh, through uh, verses 12 through 13 there, he appeals to the fear of God. And so one or the other, he says, it should work in any personality or life or, or situation. Verse 14, he warns them of an, a, the apostasy that's coming in their future. And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing, now don't, you don't need to circle in your Bible, you can, but do it in your mind, not one thing, how many is that? None. Yes. Has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke to you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. You ever buy an appliance? Don't shout out any brand names. You buy a car now. Anytime you buy something big, they want to sell you that extra insurance policy with it. And I, I'm always inclined to say no to those things because I try and find something where you don't need to buy insurance on the silly thing. It's brand new. Why would I need it? Well, okay, enough about our problems today. But here with the Word of God, never does God say, hey, listen, do this and then I will do this. And by the way, you want to buy an insurance policy in case I fail on that. Never happens. He, he keeps His Word. And I, and I love verse 14 because I've never known a saint who has walked closely with the Lord in their life who did not have the same testimony concerning the Lord about their own life. Everything he said in his word, he was faithful to do in my life. It's a testimony of Joshua. It's a testimony of many saints today. It can be every one of our testimonies. And it's just found in that life of simple obedience. And therefore, it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you. So God blesses obedience. He's faithful to His Word to bless obedience, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until He has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord has given to you. God is absolutely faithful to His Word. 
So what we want to be and make sure we are is that we're on the right side of His promises. He will be just as faithful in chastening and judging disobedience as He is in blessing obedience. So He's always faithful. Joshua said, that's what you've got to know about God. He's always faithful. So make sure you're on the obedience side of, of His faithfulness here. Otherwise, you're going to be destroyed from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And ultimately, they were. Dispossessed the northern kingdom of Israel by Assyria, the southern kingdom of Judah some years later uh, by the Babylonians. God was faithful to get them in, to give them the land, all of those things. He loved them, uh, all of that. But with these same people that he loved and he cared about, he was just as faithful to chasten them for their disobedience. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. And so he gives this warning against apostasy. The Lord is faithful to his word, and uh, make sure that you uh, are on the right side of that faithfulness. Chapter 24. And then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people. So now we have the audience as the leaders, and then all of the common people of, uh, of the, uh, uh, the nation of Israel. And all of this occurs in the, the uh, city area there of Shechem. And Joshua said to all of the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And what he's going to give them now is he's going to review their history for them from the time of Abraham or Abram all the way to Joshua's time. And in these first 12 verses that we're going to look at in, in this uh, chapter, the verse, first 13 verses here or so, uh, God uses the word or the pronoun I 17 times. And, and so the theme of the message is that everything that they had become, everything they attained to in life, was because of what God had done in His grace for them, not because of who and, and what they, they were. Joshua is saying to them, God has always been faithful to you. He has never, ever let you down. Not one single one of His promises has, has failed in your life. I mean, what else can you say in, in life about that except the Lord? So he said to the people as he reviews their history, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in olden times, and they served other gods. They were idolaters, just pagans, just like everybody else in the world. And then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And so God reminds them of their humble beginnings that when God called Abraham, he called Abraham out of a family of pagan Gentile idolaters in Nahor. It was God who made Abraham into something. 
It was God who made Abraham into a lover of God. It was God who made Abraham into a man who is revered by Jew and Gentile alike to this day, known as Father Abraham. Abraham did not make himself into one of the greatest figures in human history. God did all of that. And so he reminds them of that I did that. I drew him out of a background that he would have never gotten out of apart from me. And it's true for each one of us, too. I mean, anything, in, to any respect that is directed to any of our lives is due solely to the good thing that God has done in our lives in bringing us to Christ. Otherwise, apart from Christ, we'd still be out there in the world doing only God knows what this evening. And so he's reminding them, listen, never forget, never forget your roots, never forget, at least in some small measure, what you were before I was introduced into your history and what you would still be if I didn't introduce myself in, into your history. And so it was the Lord that did this to Abraham. And then in verse 4, he begins to talk about their bondage in Egypt and his deliverance of them out of Egypt. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt for preservation. And also I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I, and you see the I, 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 afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came in the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And so they cried out to the Lord. He put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you, then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. And so he reminds them that he had brought them out of the bondage of Egypt, that they would still be slaves in Egypt if it weren't for his power in and, and redeeming them out of that bondage. Where in the world, as I said a minute or two ago, I hate to think about where I'd be tonight apart from the Lord and the mess I would have made of my life by now if He hadn't come and pulled me out of the bondage of Egypt and out of the bondage of sin and delivered me out of that. It doesn't mean that there aren't still the temptations and the pulls and all these different things, but I know I'm saved. And I know my life has changed, and I know you know the same thing. Just to stop tonight is it just a little bit of a selah before we move on. And just to remember what we were before God pulled us out of Nahor, pulled us out of that pagan, Gentile, idolatrous history of our families and our heritage, and then brought us out with a great strong right hand. All those things that we had put ourselves into bondage to before we came to know Christ, never thought we could be free of these sins ever again. And he flexed that strong right arm and he pulled us up 
out of Egypt, redeemed us from the pull and the power of, of sin in our lives. So much to be thankful for. Then he speaks in verse 8 of the victories that he led them to on the east side of the Jordan River. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. And then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Judah, uh, of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam, and therefore he continued to bless you, so I delivered you out of his hand. God did that. God allowed them to defeat their enemies before they had even kind of gotten their feet wet to, to get ready to take on the conquest of, of the promise, the true promised land. And then when you went over the Jordan, verse 11, and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, but I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. The life that we live as Christians today is a life we would not otherwise know except for God's involvement in our lives. I did, I did, I did, I did. And as Joshua here prophesies in the name and the voice of the Lord here, there's that recognition. As great a leader as he was of the children of Israel, none of this was due to him. He gives all of the glory uh, to the Lord. I like it in verse 12 where the Lord spoke and said, I sent the hornet before you and drove them out uh, from before you. So there were... There were elements, God had promised to do that, that he would use these kind of, you know, the animal world or whatever we'd want to call it. He had promised that when you go in to, to conquer the land, I'll defeat your enemies. And he would use the, um, you know, nature and, and creation as, a, as an ally with him in doing that. And, and so apparently there was the use of insects or hornets. Again, if you've ever been stung by a hornet, I, I see why uh, teams call themselves the Hornets. You've got a lot to live up to. You better win. But that's a terrible sting to get. And so God, at, at times, in the conquest of the land, He used hornets to, to defeat the enemies or to rout the enemies. Now, sometimes you, you, many of the commentators they struggle with the idea of uh, God using hornets as a part of His uh, arsenal. And so they say, well, this really refers to the panic that the enemies felt when they were facing Israel in battle. It was the kind of panic that you would have when you're being uh, attacked by hornets. And I, and I read that kind of stuff, and, and I'm getting worse in, in my old age on this thing. And, and basically when I read that kind of stuff, I say, would you leave my Bible alone? I love the Bible. I love it as a safe place to put my mind. It's a safe harbor to put our minds into. Wonderful themes, safe themes, noble themes to allow however kind of intellect God has given any of us to search out the majesty of God. I love the Lord 
my God, and you do too, with my mind. But I also love him with my heart. I don't just have a head relationship with him. I have a very emotional heart relationship with the Lord. And I love his word, but I also love the supernatural of his Holy Spirit. And when Karen and I became Christians back in about 1980, and the dynamic of what we were born again in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the things that God was doing and still doing today in confirming His Word with signs and wonders to change our lives, to make us realize that these aren't just words on the page that we now try to live up to in our own strength, but there is a God behind this Word. This is a supernatural life that God has called us to, unlike anything else in the world. And I love the supernatural of this relationship with God. And I get more and more defensive the older I get against anything that picks away at the supernatural of God in this Christian life. Because we need His Word, but we also need the supernatural of His miracles and His Holy Spirit in this Christian life. God has a tremendous vocabulary. If He didn't want to say hornets, He could have said what He really meant. He meant hornets, so he said hornets. There's a lot that isn't included that, that in the record that he hasn't included that was a part of the conquest of the land. My point is, leave me alone with my supernatural God in my personal relationship with him. And don't put your doubt on me as a leaven in my relationship with him because I enjoy the supernatural of this Christian life way too much and I need it. And I know that I speak for many of you in, in this room also. And so here he gives this uh, 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 speaking to them of how blessed they were and in ways that they wouldn't otherwise be without the Lord. Now, Again, the lesson here comes back to the same theme of obedience. It was their obedience to God's Word that took them from nothing to something. But Joshua was saying if they turned their back on God and stopped obeying His Word, they would go from something to nothing just as fast. And it happens all the time. God is faithful to His Word. There's that temptation that happens in our lives where we come to know the Lord and He cleans us up. I mean, He makes us into something we never dreamed we could possibly be. And then we can be tempted to begin to think now in this new state of sanctification that obedience isn't really as important in my life now as it was in the early part of my Christian life. I really needed to be obedient, strictly obedient then, but now, you know, I'm a little more mature and I can take some liberties as it relates to the commandments of God. And so they begin to do things that, that they never would have dreamed of doing when they were a new Christian. And then you just add a few days, a few weeks, a few months to that, and then you run into that person on the street somewhere and you can hardly recognize them any longer. Peter put it this way. He said, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit 
and a pig having washed to her wallowing in the mire. You ever watched a dog eat its vomit? Don't shout out. I've seen it many times. I love dogs, but that's, that is a characteristic of them that I've got to give the cats the edge on, on that one. But it's, it's a rather disgusting thing to watch. Then you watch a pig that's been completely cleaned up. And then what does it do? heads straight into the sloppy old mud and makes a mess of itself again. And, and both the point that Peter's making is to watch a dog eat its own vomit, watch a pig return to, to, its, uh, to the mire. Both those things are very, very hard to witness. And it's just as hard for the Lord to watch a backslidden Christian returning to the former things. And so that the former pigsty life is still waiting for every one of us if we are tempted and we fall for the lie that obedience isn't as important to our lives today as it was in the beginning. All the change that God has brought into our lives wasn't based on our own smarts, our own talents, our own abilities, our own effort, our own wisdom. It all hinges on obedience all the way until we go to be into heaven. Then in verse 14, he calls the children of Israel now to a wholehearted, uh, uh, to wholeheartedly serve the Lord. He said, now therefore, and therefore is a response word, in the light of all that God has been to you, out in the light of all that God has done for you, how good He's been to you, now therefore, here's the response, fear the Lord, number one. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth. I hope every one of us as Christians are serving the Lord in some area, giving our lives away for the advancement of the kingdom of God in accordance with His gifting and His calling upon our lives. You know what happens if we don't serve the Lord in the areas that God has called us to serve? We've got idle time on our hands. And as the old saying, idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop, and they are. Every one of us is called to serve the Lord and give our time away for the advancement of the kingdom. It is not only good for God and the advancement of the kingdom, but it's good and it's necessary for us. And number three, he said, here's a proper response. Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And then he begins to get very exhortive with them. And if... It seems evil to you to serve the Lord. In other words, you don't want to serve the Lord? Then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. So he calls on them here that they were to take and uh, call on them to choose to serve the Lord, but he said, if you in your heart have no desire to serve the Lord, then you need to recognize you will serve someone. You will serve something. You will serve some God. And Dylan, of course, he wrote, I don't know what Dylan's spiritual state is today, didn't have a chance to Google it before the sermon, didn't come into my mind. But he had that one of those great songs that he had when, when he professed the faith in Christ, he said, you're going to have to serve someone. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but 
you're going to have to serve someone. And that's the truth of Joshua right here. In the book of Romans, it talks about the fact that every single one of us in this room is a servant. We are a slave to the one that we serve. Sometimes, and, and, and so everyone in this whole world, is, is the way that God looks at things, everyone in this whole world is a worshiper. Everyone serves some God in this world. Practically speaking, there are no atheists that live in this world. Not the way God looks at things. Sometimes people, atheists or agnostics, they look and they say, well, because I reject the God of the Bible, as a result of that, I don't worship God. That doesn't wash with God. Everybody worships some God. It may be themselves. It may be some particular sin. Whatever the master passion of my life is, that's the God that I serve. Again, practically speaking, there are no atheists or agnostics in the world. Everybody's a worshiper. It's just a matter of who and what we do worship. It's tremendous. Again, God has tremendous clarity on these issues. So he said, listen, if you, God's been nothing but good to you, but if you don't want to serve him, then then don't play games, then choose the God that you're going to serve, but don't pretend to serve God and then serve these other gods. Everybody is a worshiper of, of some God. So he calls on them to choose. No more pretending, no more half-heartedness, no more hypocrisy, no more secret life of sin in this area over here and then pretending to walk with God which is what they're going to do is what they're doing at the moment as we're going to see in just a moment he calls on them right now to choose which God are you going to serve you're going to cho choose to serve this God that's been nothing but good to you or you're going to choose to serve some other God but you are going to serve some some God so he calls on them to make the choice Right then, right there, get in, get out, and stop pretending to fear the Lord and serve the Lord when you really aren't doing that. Now, what a way to ruin a perfectly wonderful and positive final message. And yet he needed to say it to them. And, and because they were already worshiping idols in their tents secretly. And Joshua knew that that had already taken hold in their lives. It was going to lead into to judgment. And so he calls on them now to choose. And, it, and, it calls on, and he calls on us to do the same thing for us to choose tonight. We're going to serve the Lord or we're going to serve some other God. Everybody has to choose. The issue is, who do we choose? Every one of us is going to walk out of this room tonight. We're going to walk to our cars going to start that engine or we're going to sit down in some seat of a car. We're going to leave this place worshiping some God. That's just the way that it is. And we will worship the God we have chosen to worship. And Joshua calls on them to worship the Lord. And he said, then having exhorted them in this way, Joshua then declares his commitment related to his own house there on the end of verse 15. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. Joshua could not make the decision for any other household. He could only make the decision for his own household. But he exhorted them to choose, and then he, he swallowed his own medicine. And he said, I'll be the first one to choose. As for me and my house, 
we're going to choose the Lord. He doesn't have to wait to see what decision anybody else makes, Eliezer the high priest, any of the other Levites, any of the other descendants of Aaron, any of the heads of the tribes. He doesn't need to see, you know, which, what decision they're going to make. That was already a settled thing for him. As for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. In other words, it, it, Joshua looks at this. What God in human history has been pra practically this good to his people? So why in the world would I choose to serve uh, any other God? And so he, in, in light of that history of God's grace and his blessing, he said, we will choose to follow the Lord. Now, it's important, I think, for us to see in this, and it's a famous passage in the Old Testament, that it is supremely the Father's responsibility to make sure that his home is in line with the Word of God, with the Lord. Now, today, increasingly, because of the breakdown of the family unit and marriage, and I don't mean to depress anybody because a lot of times marriages end and it's not the fault of both persons it's the fault of one person and you can be the innocent side in that thing but if there is no man or father in the household a husband there then whoever is the person who has the ultimate spiritual authority in that home needs to make a decision for that household that we will serve the Lord here and we've always had, in our household, we've always had, it was one of the first things Karen did when we became Christian. She, uh, it wasn't needlepoint, it was something, but you know how you do that thing with needles and some kind of a thread? There's lots of different names for that. I should have Googled that too. But, but this, this verse is up in, in our home. And it doesn't mean that we've always been perfect and made every right decision and, and always done the right thing in, in our household or in raising the kids. But this was the standard. And there were a time or two, you know, when we raised two daughters and a uh, time or two where maybe they felt that the standard that we were maintaining in the household was a little different than that standard that they wanted it to be. And, and so there would be some pushing it back against that a little bit. And it was nice for me to always be able to go in and, and talk with them and try to explain to them, you know, once or twice on those kind of deals or whatever it was and just explain to them, you know, one day I am going to personally stand before God and give an account for this household and how I raised you in the standard of this household. And it doesn't matter that I'm a pastor. It would be the same standard if, if I wasn't a pastor. But that is a part of my future, an eye-to-eye -eye with Jesus himself, where I'm going to have to give an account. And so because of that, we choose in this situation to go with the Word of God in that decision. And they seem to understand that. And I was appreciative of that when, when those times uh, came in and I always I don't know what you need as a father in a household I love the grace of God in this instance the fear of God was something that was wonderful too to give me some backbone on stuff and to just look and to realize no I fear him enough that I want to be able to answer properly related to 
to the, the, my, my household. It's an important, that the, an important stand that we need to make concerning our homes and our lives today. No matter what the world is doing, the technology that's being allowed into the house. I mean, in the old days we're talking about posters or we're talking about magazines and we're talking about all kinds of, of different kind of things, television and media too and all. But now the stuff is just crazy what's coming out and what's available there. And parents, really, we have to stay on top of this and put this stuff to the test even when we're resisted by our children and strongly resisted and to say, this is what the Word of God says. This is the standard of this house. Look at the blessings in this house because we walk with God. There's food on the table. There's a vehicle to drive here and there. You have loving parents. You have this. Look at all the blessings that are here as a result of what, everything that we have is, is a gift from God. And so we won't move away from this. And sometimes push comes to shove, and the kiddo will come along and say, well, I'm not willing to live under that, and they'll, they'll leave. And that becomes a very hard thing for a parent but a parent has to make a stand. I'm not saying that that should be the first thing that happens with make a stand in, in a house. But if it push comes to shove on that, and the kid says, I'm, I'm gone, I'm out of here, I'm not going to live here under the godly standard that you've set, it's still the same thing. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This house is about the Lord. I love the story by Don McClure, who, is, who used to be the pastor of Calvary Chapel in San Jose. And this is public information, by the way. Um, he speaks of it frequently. But when he was pastoring down in Southern California, Redlands, before he came to San Jose, and now he's kind of an at-large speaker. He's spoken here a number of times and one of my favorite teachers in the whole world. But he had one of his sons was really a, a difficult, difficult child. And, uh, and finally, you know, Don's pushed to the place where it's just this kind of a deal. This is what our house is about. This is the standard. And, and so, uh, you know, he, he said, that you've got to choose whether you want to be a part of that. And, and his son said, I'm out of here. I'm going to leave. Don said to his son just before he left him, the final things that he said to his son, he said, listen, if you find something better than Jesus out there, you come back and tell me. They didn't see their son for months. And then when their son came back to the front door, he spoke to Don and he said, I didn't find anything better out there than Jesus. And some kids learn the hard way. Some kids learn the easier way. But it was Don's responsibility to make the stand for his household. And it's our responsibility also one of the things that we will never regret, there can be a lot of regret in parenting. It's a very difficult calling um, to, and, and a great responsibility to raise, uh, raise children. But one of the things we will never regret over the long haul is making God's Word the standard of the household. And then what the, what the children do with that and what they do with that in adult life, we can't control that. But we can know that we gave them a strong biblical sense of what is right and wrong and good and bad. They had what was necessary to serve them and, and, and to uh, have a successful life and a blessed life. And that's something that we can live with rather than caving and having all kinds of wickedness in the house and then the kids 
turn out in all kinds of different conditions and then there's the guilt of man I wish if I could do it again one more time to make this the standard and see what would have happened Joshua said as for me and my house we will serve the Lord and that should be our decision tonight also for the people so the people answered and said far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods they're shocked that Joshua would accuse them of needing to choose to worship the Lord. For the Lord our God is the one who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land, and we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. We would never think of not following God in light of how good he's been to us. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. For if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you... Uh, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. Joshua knows that they're secretly engaged in idolatry, and he's telling them in that current condition they, they cannot serve the Lord. The people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. This is an interactive sermon. Dangerous. So Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve Him. You have mouthed that. And they said, We are witnesses. We've said it and we're going to do it. And now therefore, he said, Put away the foreign gods which are present tense among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. So they got all these words coming out and making this the emotion of the moment, making a commitment to God, but they weren't willing to repent of the idols that they were secretly worshiping at, at home. And so he calls on them. He puts his finger right on it. I mean, he's, he's pushing hard now in this sermon. And so he said, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and His voice we will obey. Well, Joshua knows you can only push a congregation so far. I mean, well, you can't call people liars, right, to their face, so to speak, and judge their heart that way. And so what Joshua did is he made a covenant with the people that day and he made them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words uh, in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak uh, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And so they made a commitment to fully serve God. Joshua recorded that, probably laid it up next to the Ark of the Covenant. He, probably, and he also took and engraved it on a large stone that was set up under an oak tree that was there at, at the time. And Joshua said to all of the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us, and it shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. And so Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. Well, you, have, you hope for kind of perkier, final, you know, last words. But, but time is going to show that everything that Joshua said to the children of Israel needed to be said to them. And it wasn't pleasant for them to hear, and it wasn't pleasant for him to speak those things. 
It would have been nice for them to just close with a big group hug. But that wasn't the condition of everyone's heart. And so he rebukes them. And we're going to see in a very, very short period of time that they're going to forsake the Lord and they're going to give themselves fully to the idols that they said they weren't committed to. And it came to pass after those things, after these things, that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. That's how we know his age. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of uh, Gaash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the, of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. So Joshua had the privilege of influencing two generations for God in human history. The title that's given to him in verse 29 is the highest title that any of us can have in our service to the Lord when it comes to an end. He's described as the servant of the Lord. That's what we want to hear one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He was successful in his ministry. The people, after the generation that was right behind Joshua, the people will completely uh, abandon the Lord, forsake him and go after idolatry. And I think this is one of the things that's important related to ministry because here you have Joshua. He's given his entire life to the service of the Lord, to the advancement of the kingdom of God, for all these great things to happen. And yet, in just over a generation, in terms of on planet Earth, there will be nothing physical to show for it. And the temptation to look back, if Joshua had lived longer, to look back and say, I completely wasted my life. It had no lasting effect. But we're not called and, and judged in terms of the success of our ministries on the basis of how long-lasting the fruit is. People have their own free will to make their own decisions. Joshua was faithful in the season that he had to be faithful in. What people then did with that they will answer to God for. And it's important for us. You and I are all going to, all of us as we serve the Lord, we're going to do things, be involved in situations that by the time we walk away from it, having invested years in it, you're going to watch that whole thing crumble immediately after you move away from it. And there'll be the doubts, you know, what good was that? What difference did that make? That's not our problem. Our problem is to be faithful to God and what he's called us to do in that block of time, and then what becomes of it, that's in God's hands to deal with between him and other people. And the bones of jo Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem, and the plot of ground which Jacob had brought, bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. So you remember Joseph, before he, they... He died. He said, you folks are getting out of Egypt. You don't know it, but you're going to leave Egypt. And when you go, take my dead bones with you. And they did. They took his bones and they buried him in Egypt. And, and here Joseph had the faith to realize 
They're going to inherit that land, and I want my bones buried there, and good for them for honoring his last wishes. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. He was the high priest during this whole season of the conquest of the land, and they buried him on a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. So he finished his, his race and his course uh, well also. Let's stand together. Let's have the worship team come forward.